You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. This is the last of the five here on this big question, atonement, what is it? Uh, I have looked at various theories, but all along I hope one of the things that you remember from what I've tried to do is that this experience with this famous painting depicts is about something that is all-encompassing, mysterious, incomprehensible in its own reality that Christ is the atonement between humanity and God, that what has happened in Christ is unique once and for all, and it settles the the relationship that we have with God and secures us in that, in all of its dimensions. And therefore, one thing I've tried to do with this series is to say we shouldn't just pick one particular theory of the atonement because the scriptures present this notion of atonement, that is, that we've been reconciled with God in many ways. And what I've tried to do is to talk about these five different approaches to understanding the atonement, and they're all based upon what I call metaphors or images or pictures, or how you arrange things together in sort of a visual way. The first theory that we looked at was this penal penal substitution, and the basic metaphor that it is couched in is a courtroom. We're guilty, and we are, and we're we're pronounced guilty by God and there's a just punishment. Well, how do we get right with God? Well, Christ comes and pays that penalty for us. We're right with God because God has paid. That's a very objective notion of what's called the atonement. Then we looked at another theory, the rescue theory, where God, where Christ comes and delivers us from sin and from death itself and from the devil, that we're in its clutches and we cannot escape it. And Christ comes and 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 enables us to be delivered from these things that we cannot deliver ourselves from. Then the third one is what's called the moral persuasion theory. It is a subjective model. And the basic metaphor of that is romance, that God in Christ has come and loved us so overwhelmingly so that our hearts are changed and we're drawn towards God. Then what we talked about last Sunday is called the cosmic recapitulation. And that is Christ has come and is restoring the world back to its original healthy position with God. The metaphor there is that we're sick, we're corrupted, we're diseased, we're disabled. We cannot get out of our own sort of wheelchair, so to speak. The world in itself is infected with something that is cancerous to it. And the basic metaphor is a hospital. We're in a hospital bed and we cannot get out. Christ comes and heals us and heals the world back to God. Well, the fifth one that I want to talk about today is Christ the Victor, Christus Victor. That's a Latin phrase based upon, well, it's an old phrase, but a book that was published in 1931. I'll talk about it a little bit later on. But the basic metaphor to this one that we're going to talk about today is that we are in a battle, a battlefield metaphor, that there is an enemy that has assaulted us, in us, continuing to assault us, that we have an adversary that at times obviously outmatches us and we're up against something that we cannot defeat ourselves. Christ comes in in the battlefield, takes over the combat itself, and defeats the foe, and we're freed from this onslaught. All right, bear with me as I go through a number of these.
And today we're talking about Christus Victor, Christ the Victor, the one who has led the army against the forces of darkness and is defeating the army and is continuing at work to overcome the powers and principalities as they are called. The basic themes or principles of the Christus Victor, Christ the Victor, is that humanity is under assault from forces of destruction, and indeed we are, that we are constantly against an adversary that is formidable and relentless, that it is reaping havoc within not only our personal lives at times, but society and nations as well. From the very beginning, when Cain slew Abel, something was wrong. We're up against something that at times we're outmatched, and it will always come back, and the battlefield is constantly being waged. Christ saves us by fighting against evil and ultimately defeating it. That Christ is not removed from the world in which we live. Salvation is not just an escape from history, from the time and space, from our particular lives, from our nation, from our era. Salvation also includes Christ coming down, getting involved with the affairs of human life, involved with the struggles that we all deal with, to overcome this adversary that God is so invested in the world that God has created and declared it to be good, that God's compassion and relentless and persistent and eternal commitment to the world that God has made has is the reason why Christ is still within the midst of fighting these forces of darkness that we all deal with. I alluded to this last time. I probably touched on it uh, maybe a time or two before. One of the early sort of theological threats to the faith, Christian faith, was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a religious movement that used a lot of Christian terminology that promised people a secret knowledge of how to get out of darkness, the world, the flesh, the body. How to have such a spiritual perspective on life that you are freed from all the despair and dismay that goes on within human history. Gnosticism then is a sort, in a sort of a way is an escape that Christ enables us to escape the forces of darkness. Get out of history. That's always, I think, been a threat for Christians. A lot of Christians look at salvation as an escape from the world. Well, God is committed to the world. God is involved in the world. And God is redeeming the world. And one way that God is redeeming the world is that Christ is in the midst of these forces of darkness and fighting on behalf of God, on behalf of us. And then finally, as I've already alluded to, the basic metaphor is the battlefield. And we are indeed in a battle. Now, like I said earlier, the Scriptures have a number of ways of talking about atonement. That is, how are we right with God? How has God solved our problem? In what way are we that we know that we are reconciled with God? And I think this is one of them, obviously. It's not the only, but it is one of them, this Christus Victor. And what I want to do is so, show sort of a narrative, a story that you can find within Scripture by piecing various Scriptures to this point. The first one I want to talk about there is Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says to the churches at Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. We live in an evil age. Now, of course, God is still sovereign. The world is still inherently good. But it's under assault. 
the sovereignty of God is being challenged. The world in some ways is like marked with bombshells and so on. We live in an evil age, Paul says. In second, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Well, what has caused this evil age? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, Yet among the mature we do not speak wisdom, though it is not wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. Some translations, the old King James translates what this, the New American, the New Revised Standard, rulers of the age, as the prince of this world. And it's from a Greek word, and I'm going to talk a little bit later about the significance of this Greek word, that you can translate as ruler. Well, here Paul is arguing that this evil age that we live in is under the sway of a ruler, of something that is willing and intending to corrupt and despoil the creation that God has made. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. The Apostle says, starting with verse 18, We know that those who are born of God do not sin, but the one who was born of God protects them, and the evil one does not touch them. We know that we are God's children, and that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. That's a big statement. The whole world is the battlefield that the evil one has created. That all throughout creation, from top to bottom, left and right, this prince of the world, this, this corrupting, dominating force here is affecting all aspects of creation itself. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 2. I'll start with verse 1. For you are dead through the trespasses of sins, in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work among you, those who are disobedient. Paul again picks up this idea that there's a ruler, something intentional, something deliberate, something that is forceful, that is the ruler over this world that is causing destruction throughout all the world. Then at the end of this chapter, and I'll come back to this too a little later on, chapter 6, Actually, I'll start with verse 11. No, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His power. The question is why? Why be strong in the Lord? If God has done it all, why should I be strong in the Lord? Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done so, to stand firm. Here, Paul obviously depicts that we're being attacked, that we're under assault, that we have a very formidable foe that is working destruction, not just us personally, but socially and nationally and internationally as well. So Dennis, when he's saying, so I mentioned you're already, he went back to Cain and Abel. 
he links up the killing of Abel with the creation of civilization. So when he's saying principalities, rulers, powers, authorities, that's beyond Satan. That's governments. I mean, what is he saying when he's saying principalities, rulers, powers, authorities? Well, good question. Uh, give me about two more minutes and I'll get to that because I want to look at a couple more verses. But that's the question to ask. Who are these people? Where are they? What positions do they have? Christ is depicted within this midst of the battlefield as the one who comes into this battle itself. Christ is not afraid to enter into the fray. Christ is not in any way such an utterly removed indifferent, redeeming God, that God, Christ just says, look, I'll give you a way to get out of this problem. No, Christ comes in the midst of this problem to solve it. Well, in the Gospel of John, there is this depiction. John chapter 12, verse 31. I'll start with verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is not for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. This is Christ's declaration of war. Now the ruler of this world, this force that intentionally seeks to destroy and corrupt the world, to harm it, to prevent it from living up to the purposes God has given it, Christ has now declared war upon it. One way we should understand Christ's atoning work is that Christ has declared war against the forces of darkness. First uh, John 3.8 Little children, let no one deceive you. This is verse 7. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Christ has come, declared war, to destroy the works of the devil. One way to understand Christ is that Christ is a fighter, that Christ knows how to get in and be engaged with the, the, the horrible affairs of human life, that these unbelievably innumerable destructive things that have happened to people since Cain slew Abel. Christ is in the midst of this. Christ knows how to suffer the effects of being in a battle, but Christ knows how to overcome the adversary in that battle. Romans 8, chapter uh, verses 35. This is one of the great passages, I think, in all of Scripture that depicts the great victory that Christ has given us. What then are we to say about these things? This is verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold His Son, but gave Him up for all of us, will He not uh, with Him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardness or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ will overcome each of those obstacles. And the one that will be overcome as well is the ruler, the prince of this world. And then finally, I'm not going to read it, I'll just allude to it. This all comes to a culmination in this apocalyptic vision there in chapter 16 of Revelation of the battle of Armageddon where Christ leads the forces of God against the forces of evil, Satan, the, uh, the seven-headed dragon, the land beast, the sea beast, all these marshaled together like some sort of great picture. They're lined up to finally overcome the goodness of God's creation. And here at the very end, God doesn't back away, doesn't retreat, doesn't say, I've had enough. I'm going to give up on this corrupted world. Here at the Battle of Armageddon, Christ weighs against it and ultimately defeats it. And then what we read there in Romans chapter 8 becomes so true. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It will win out. Christ's love will be the final word of creation itself. Back to your question here. Okay, uh, On a couple of times, Paul and also John uses certain words here to describe these adversarial forces, rulers or principalities and powers. Now, if you, you, if you have a Greek dictionary, you can go look these up. On one hand, they're just sort of neutral words that any ruler, an arches, is an elected official or a leader of an organization. They're called an arches. A power, exousis, is any authority, someone who has the ways and means to get things done. Not just personally, but collectively. They marshal forces and they get things done. All the world needs archas and exousis. That is, we need rulers. We need powers. We need governments. We need people in charge of things. You can't imagine the world without leaders and rulers and powers in this way. But something goes wrong. They become part of the adversary. They become part of the work of destruction within the world. These things that God has has instituted, become polluted, uh, maligned, uh, misdirected, taken over, poisonous, malicious, cancerous in their exercise. The natural good institutions become corrupted to do destruction. Evil is parasitic and its aim is destruction. A government is not evil. A ruler is not antithetical to God. God has ordered the world this way. God has set it up in a sense that we have to have these institutions. But what happens? Something comes in and corrupts what is good to do destructive purposes. And the aim of this, just like a parasite, is to take all life out of it, is to remove all goodness from it. That we are encountering a force that's not just an institution, but it's an institution gone malicious and malignant. We're not dealing just with individuals themselves, 
but we're dealing with a spiritual power that's behind that individual and institution whose aim is nothing but destruction. This is what we face. Think of all the instances that we know of in which all of a sudden, uh, Beverly and I were listening, she was reading on her phone driving over this morning, a new shooting has occurred up in Nashville, right? Was it Nashville? People at a, a Waffle House, four killed, man with a gun walks in and kills them. Why? Self-defense? War? No, I don't know why. We're always dealing with these inexplicable, disrupting events that come just for purely destructive means. Like what happened down in Parkland, Florida. Purely destruction. It wasn't for a good cause. It wasn't for a greater reason. It wasn't for some sort of you know, magnificent accomplishment. It was just pure destruction. And we live in a world in which these kinds of events happen to us constantly. Uh, I didn't use this word, but a word that is often used in the New Testament, and it's a loaded word, and so bear with me for a minute as I kind of work on it to make, I hope, a useful word. It's the demonic. I'm a little reluctant to use the word because of the connotations that it has. You know, these little things, ghost-like minions that float around and zap us through Ouija boards and seances and so on. That's not it. I, in fact, I wish it were that. It would be easier to handle. We'd just get rid of all the Ouija boards and no seances. and We wouldn't have this adversarial force. But we do deal with something, like I said, that is inexplicable, disrupting, unpredictable, and purely destructive. Its aim is to corrupt, to corrode, to eliminate, to decimate. And we are in face with this. A lot of us may make mistakes, obviously so. Sometimes it's out of ignorance, and sometimes it's just out of our personal uh, limitations and weaknesses. We make mistakes. People as a whole sometimes make mistakes because of their personal weaknesses. I'm not talking about that. The powers and principalities are not just stupid governmental leaders. They're not just people who you know didn't know what they should have known and made mistakes in it. The powers and principalities that the New Testament talks about is how these things that were created by God that are good some way or another get twisted just for purely destructive reasons. I'll just use it once again, the, the illustration of Cain and Abel. God created the family. God created Adam and Eve to come together in one of their purposes so that they could be fruitful and multiply. The family is part of what God desired. The world is structured in a way in which there is a family and it's a good thing. We should applaud and promote it. But what happens? And you can imagine jealousy in any family. It's a natural experience. I mean, all of us, if you're siblings, know what that means to have sibling rivalry. Cain and Abel had sibling rivalry. But what did Cain do, though? He killed his brother. He just didn't get rid of the jealousy. He killed him. Murder is purely destructive. Evil, the powers and principalities are the demonic, is what's added on to something that makes it purely destructive. Here's an analogy. Let's say accidentally I cut my hand right here with a knife. Well, the cut's bad enough. It's natural. It could bleed, you know, so I, I try to stop. But an infection comes in. That's not the cut. The cut is not the infection. And if I don't treat the infection, it makes it worse to the point that one could die from the infection more than from the cut. Evil is that infection that comes in upon the natural things that happen in life. Evil is this other thing that's not aimed at anything good, that does not have a constructive ending, but its purpose is true decimation of the goodness that, 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 that God has brought into the world.
Christ has come in the world not to overcome the governments, not to overcome the family, not to get rid of social relationships and institutions, but Christ has come into the world to free us from that infection, from that power and principality that corrupts in addition to to the demonic. And Christ is a fighter. And Christ is engaged in this. See, I think this is obviously part of our devotional life. Uh, This expresses something deep within our hearts that we deal with something we're outmatched by. That if, If all we had to do was to deal with an army or with another government, I think we would have solved those problems. I'm, I'm rambling here, but do you think we need another world war to convince us we shouldn't go to world war? Do you? My grandparents lived in two world wars, the beginning of World War One and the end of World War Two. Within their lifetime, Almost a half a billion people were killed because of war and governmental conflicts. It seems like we would have learned after World War I that we shouldn't go back to war. But we did within a generation. And we will probably do it again. We, we know enough not to want to do so, those things. But what happens? If you, I'm rambling here, but you probably have studied the causes of World War I. World War I was not the good guys versus the bad guys. There was this treaty arrangement. The Serbian radical killed Ferdinand, and all the treaties started to line up. And before you know it, the trench warfare was going on, and close to 10 million people died in Western Europe alone because of all that. Within three years of that assassination, 10 million people died in Western Europe. It's madness, and I think we are involved in something that's mad. Now, I know, I know I'm not sounding like a philosopher. I'm not sounding all that rational. I'm not sounding all that you know, predictable in what I can say about things. But uh, I do think this is a realistic assessment with what we deal. One of my favorite philosophers is a guy named Hegel, a German philosopher, 19th century. And he said, and Will, you'll probably, as a historian, I hope vouchsafe for this, that history is the slaughter bench of humanity. History is the slaughter bench of humanity. Now, our lives relatively are good and healthy and prosperous, and we have wonderful blessings in our life. God has given us a cornucopia of goodness in our family, our work, our health, just the beauty of days and so on. But there's also something else that's out there that could erupt. Just like, you know, this morning, four people went to the Waffle House, and they're dead now. Something erupted. Something inexplicable has broken in upon their lives where there was light. Now, there is darkness. What is God doing in all that? Has God left us alone with it? Has God abandoned a world that just seems to relentlessly, persistently go back to this kind of horrible conflict? What has God done? The Scriptures tell us that Christ has declared war on this. That Christ is a fighter, a combater. That Christ is in the midst of all this. And we have sort of brought this into our heart, I think, And it has come out, and I've just given you four, I think I could possibly give you more, of these magnificent hymns. Two of these are two of my top four hymns. The first one here, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, In my opinion, we don't sing that enough. Uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. This is the third stanza. Uh, It's hard not to sing these things. (laughs) You know? know? 
So I, I'll, I, I would run you out if I tried to sing it, so I'll just read it. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And that's the word of Christ. Why? Because Christ is in there combating this prince of darkness. And then there's this wonderful hymn, Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory. Uh, and it's a, it is a magnificent Christian hymn. You know, it, it was so much associated with the Civil War, we down here in the South you know, don't want to sing it because it was sort of the battle hymn of the Republic, not of the Confederacy. But unfortunately, we've missed out on some very rich theology and devotional experiences with this hymn. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. And Christ's truth is marching on. He is not given up. He is relentless. He is our battlefield commander. He is the one who is leading us to retaliate against this force that is re uh, wrecking havoc upon us. And then there's this old hymn that uh, we in our more sophisticated days have dropped, but that too is unfortunate because I do think there's rich theology in this hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. Onward Christian Soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe. Forward into battle, see his banner go. Now, this is not an endorsement of a military campaign. This is an endorsement of Christ's campaign. And we are Christ's soldiers. We are with Him, fighting against these foes of darkness. And then this wonderful hymn, I, I hope when I die, I am singing this hymn, I will die, happy man. Uh, I think it's one of the great hymns in all the church, and that's for all the saints. For all the saints who from their labors rest, who with thee by faith before the world confessed. Thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Thou wast their rock, their fortress, and their might. Thou, Lord, their captain in the well-fought fight. Thou, in the darkness, drear their one true light. Hallelujah, hallelujah, and so on. These represent, as I've said part of the devotional experience of the church that we know from the reading of scriptures that Christ is there at the front line fighting on our behalf and that though at times the, the foe is formidable and it seems like we're lost, Christ is still fighting. And the promise of our Christian faith is like just what the Battle of Armageddon says, those forces ultimately will be defeated. I want to mention this little book here. I read this years ago when I was in the seminary. Christus Victor by a Swedish theologian, uh, Gustav Allen. He published this in 1931 and it was eventually uh, translated in English in 1969. I think it's a brilliant piece. Uh, he does a couple of things in here. What he says is that typically when the church thinks about atonement, they think about it in what's called the objective and the subjective ways, just as we have already described the objective ways like penal substitution. And, as Olin says, that most conservative 
churches and theologians have wanted to emphasize it above all the others, that there is an objective reality to atonement. But there is this subjective level or aspect of atonement, what we saw earlier with Abelard and the moral persuasion, and that the romantic model is that Christ comes and outloves us and we are persuaded to change. And Olin says this is associated primarily with liberal churches and theologians. And so the church is divided into conservative, objective theories of atonement, and liberal, subjective theories of atonement. And that's probably true even to this day. Unfortunately, <coughs> what he argues is that we're, we're missing something. We have forgotten something. That's what he calls the classic view. The classic view, and he goes all the way back to Irenaeus and some of the earlier church fathers, they depict Christ coming into this realm of darkness and fighting against the foes, the adversary. That the classic view sees Christ as this combatant, the Christus victor, Christ the victor over the forces of evil. And so what he wants to do in this book, and I think he has. I remember when I, I read this, I thought, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's true. Just as I said, the scriptures have a, has a narrative. They have a story that paints this. And our devotional life, a mighty fortress is our God resonates with this idea that we have a combatant leading us into the forces of darkness that we can't even understand, more or less outmatch. And so this notion that Christ is the victor, I think, is a very, very powerful theme of what it means to be atoned with God. I've got a couple of minutes here, and I want to speculate about something. Salvation requires the defeat of evil. It does. Why am I saying that? Because it's God's world. God made it. God made a covenant with it time and time again. The Noahic covenant. And even prior to that, you could call the Sabbath a covenant. Because God makes the world to rest with it on the Sabbath day. It's God's world. And God designed it in a way in which God could commune with it in incredibly intimate ways. So we have the Sabbath rest. We work for six to rest on the Sabbath. To experience God in this very familial, intimate way. God has made a commitment to the world. Time and time again, God shows God's commitment to creation. God's not going to abandon it, even though it is so marred, so injured, so disabled by the forces of darkness that some way or another have come within it and have perverted and distorted the good things that God has done. Christ wages battle against the corruptive forces. Frankly, I like this metaphor. I like them all, but I like this metaphor. I like the idea that we just don't have to sit back and take it. That evil will not have the last word. That the forces of darkness that misuse rulers and misuse governments and misuse families, misuse people to do these horribly despoiling things within creation, they do not have the last word. That we can be proud and courageous. That we can marshal within our hearts these great virtues of courage and confidence, and patience, and long-suffering. This is the battle that we're waging. And we don't have to give up. I shouldn't fall into nihilism and despair if another war breaks out, if another act of violence. Christ is in the midst of this. Christ is fighting it. Christ uses love and goodness to defeat evil, not destruction. Now, I just, like I said, moved into speculation here for many people. I don't think God, Christ will use forces of darkness to overcome forces of darkness. I don't think Christ will have the aim of destruction in order to stop destruction. I think Christ works the same way that Christ has always worked. 
by love and service. That the true power that will transform the world, that will overcome, not just human sin, which we all have a plethora of, not just the fact that we make mistakes and we suffer the consequences, of, but the fact that we are up against foes of darkness. Christ will overcome that by the very tools that we all have from Christ. The very instruments of salvation that Christ has given each one of us. Mercy, forgiveness, tenderness, love. These are the weaponry that will overcome the forces of darkness. Whenever we love rather than retaliate, whether we, whenever we show mercy rather than hate, even though it may be reasonable to do so, we stop the infections. We stop the cancerous growth. And these are the weapons that Christ is asking each one of us. I read there from Ephesians chapter 6, we have an armor. I have a shield. I have a helmet. I have a sword. Christ has endowed us with this combative machinery, so to speak. The instruments of, 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 of assault against the assaulters that Christ expects us to put on the armory and get in the front line with him and fight it out with the forces of darkness, but in the way in which Christ fights it. And so this is a call to arms. If we really do believe, and we should, it's part of Scripture, it's part of our devotional life, that Christ is fighting evil, then we should all be conscripted to enlist, to join him in this battle. Now, what I mean by that is this. I've already alluded to it. If somebody hits you in one side of your face, what do you do? You hit them back. That's the forces of darkness creating a natural conflict into something infectious. It's hatred and revenge. And look how many people's lives have been slaughtered out of hate and revenge. Revenge is a natural kind of response, I think, that we all have. But the powers and principalities come in and say, yeah, you have a right to get even. Go kill him. Slaughter them. They've harmed us. They've insulted us. Let's go and settle the score by eliminating whatever possible goodness may be in their lives. That's when we become the army of the darkness. But Christ says, put on this armor of faith. Put on this helmet of belief. Put on the sword of the word of the Lord. These are the ways that we fight. And so the church here is in a very significant time. It's always been, but mostly I think that we... we the, the, our society in many parts of the Western world is forgetting these kinds of admonitions that we have within Scripture. And they will fall back on the only things that they know what to fall back on, and that is vengeance and hatred. These are the natural impulses that we all have. And I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe we're going to see more fear, more hatred, more vengeance, more retaliation, and ultimately more murderers, more orphans, more widows, more despair, more darkness in the world. Because people don't know how to fight the forces of darkness properly. We, though, the church, do know how to fight it. And so we fight it with the instruments that Christ fights it, and that with love and service and mercy and forgiveness. These are our weaponry. And so every time we don't retaliate but love, every time we don't hate but show mercy, we're winning the battle. We've just won it. And we should never, ever, ever give up on those facts because this is how Christ will overcome it. And even though we'll be scarred and marred and we'll, to keep my metaphor going, we'll have battle scars 
You know, we'll pull up our sleeves, as Henry Faith said, and show them with pride. Yes, I got this one because of love. Yes, I got that one because of mercy. Yes, I got that one because of forgiveness. But we won. And I, I'm getting worked up on this, but, but I really think, metaphorically speaking, that when that final battle is done, when Armageddon finally completes this combat that is necessary to redeem the world, Christ will bring back all the great saints. And they like, you know, you probably have seen these pictures that happened on the USS Missouri when Japan surrendered. They had all those military brass there and they all had on their medals there showing what they represented for the Army of the United States in World War II. You'll be there. You'll have your medal. <laughs> You'll have your, your crown. And that we will have won this fight the way that Christ will win the fight. I believe that. I believe that. I don't think I cannot but believe that and take seriously what the Scriptures say about what Christ is doing. Any comments or questions? She, she, she was reading something, my wife was reading something about one of these guys, that this senator from on the way down. Oh, well this sort of pertains to that, but anyway, Cory Booker is a senator, I believe, from New Jersey, and they were doing the interviews with Mike Pompeo to be Secretary of State, and he wants him defeated in that position simply because he's a Christian. He doesn't feel like any Christian should be allowed to serve in public office. So, I mean, that's a big force of evil right there, I would say, going on in our Senate and our Senate hearings, and to, you know, an attempt to really just blot out everything you're saying. And everything that Christ right. said. Like I said, I, I think we're going to be seeing more of that because our cultural memory is leaving behind its Christian roots. And so once again, what will people fall back on? Dennis. Yes. You mentioned the infection from a cut. Do you think a writer like Saul Alinsky was basically just trying to start an infection? Uh. <laughs> I, I know of, but I've not read Alinsky. So I'm a little hesitant to speak with any authority on that. Well, but I know he's used... to Lucifer. He did? He did. He dedicated it to Lucifer? <laughs> Therefore, um, I know he has been used by a lot of people to ferment a lot of hate. In order to win, you have to decimate your opponent. See, a Christian cannot think that way. We do not think that way. We don't win by decimating our opponent. We love our enemy. And that changes the enemy. We don't kill our enemy. I think that message is absolutely right, but we don't hear that. Yeah, no. Why do we as Christians vote for capital punishment? Because ultimately, that guy that killed so many people, we need to retaliate right. and do the same. Yeah, I agree. And, and that's all of people's personal... I'm just saying, if we could embrace the power of love and how... Right. Strong that is. I think we could marinate in that, and then for me, I'm so quickly offended, and I lie and deny it to myself, and I really, at the end of the day, have to take that to Christ and deal exactly. with that affront to these people that write books dedicated to Satan, and these people that you do want to see die at the end of the day that go into the lawful shop. I mean, it's not in me to automatically love like Christ does. So to be free to know. 
I got to get in there and wrestle because now I've got the parasite on me. I'm wanting to retaliate. Right. Or I'm want, you know, being able to go, his love is that big that he wants to first and foremost help me go through life. Right. Not killing other people in retaliation or not getting even, or not even just, I think evil's so subtle, it sends me out offended. And so there's no power in me to work for Christ in that moment. Is that no one is immune from acting in evil ways. Yeah. Good people can do destructive things yes. and think they're doing it for good reasons. That's the subtlety of evil. Yes. But don't you think it gets really complicated? Like if you go back to say World War Two, when the U.S. had to get involved to stop Hitler, they were caught there between right. the devil and the deep. I agree. There's no. I agree. Real Christian agree. response there. Well, like I said, I'm in deep waters here, speculating in this fashion. Uh, it was the right thing for our covenant, our country to go to war. I don't have any doubts about that. Uh, however, though, we in the church, we committed to another Lord, to another set of scriptures, to another way of living, should always speak in one voice that our weaponry is love, not hatred, mercy, not vengeance. So we as Christians live in a very, very difficult situation. On one hand, we are citizens of the world and we want to promote the goodness of this world. We should. It's God's creation. It's a gift given to us. But on the other hand, we live in an institution that's defined by an ethic that no other institution can even remotely understand. Can you imagine any government based upon the principle of loving your enemy? Any rule of law, and some of your lawyers, are based on mercy, not vengeance? No. Things work because of settling the score, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, quid pro quo. But the church says, no, we know another way. And so, one of the reasons I'm saying this is is to encourage all of us to hear that rally call that Christ is out there trampling the vintage of the grapes of wrath. We should hear the clarion, the trumpet call for us that we should also exercise the battle against the adversary in the same way that Christ has. And we offer then the hope of the world. We offer, not they, we offer the hope of the world. Yes? For not the sword's loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy to heaven and kingdom. That's a great hymn. I almost weep every time I read, uh, sing that. Any other question or comment? Well, let us go in peace. Yes. I just want to thank you, Ben. Yes. Oh. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I don't know. One of these days I'll come back. All right, let's pray. Lead on, O Christ. Fight hard. Call us into battle and that we may join with You and then one day with You we will experience the great victory. Endow us with the power of Thy Spirit. And this I pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.